0: Alright, we're going to be continuing in Acts. We're in Acts chapter 17. And last week what we looked at was uh, we saw that Paul and Barnabas had split up and uh, Paul's traveling with Timothy, Silas, and Luke now. And they started their journey through Philippi and they were, had released a demon-possessed girl and they got thrown in jail over it and they were beaten, but the jailer and his household ended up getting saved And then they were kicked out of Philippi and on to their next place. So we're starting in Acts 17 here. I'm going to go ahead and uh, open in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord. And I pray that uh, it would be your word spoken here tonight, not my own. I pray that uh, you'd open our hearts, Lord, to receive it, Lord God, that you would just give us a clearer vision of you, Lord God, that you would draw us closer to you, that you would uh, help us to grow in our love for you, our knowledge of you, and our faith in you, Jesus. And I pray that you just speak to us now. In your name I pray. Amen. So in Acts chapter 17, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So they spent over three weeks here preaching to these people, and uh, only some of that audience was persuaded, but a great multitude of the Greeks were saved, and a lot of the leading women. Uh, it's sad because the Jews, were sh- they should have been ready to receive Christ, they should have been ready to receive this gospel. But... Uh, there's that crimson thread in the Old Testament that points to Jesus, and they had the prophecies of the Messiah. But uh, they were rejecting him, and the Gentiles were readily receiving him. And it looks like they probably spent three Sabbaths in the synagogue, but they probably stayed there a while after that, uh, spending time with the uh, Gentiles there. On to verse 5, it says, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So these Jews aren't content to go to hell themselves. They want the Gentiles to go with them. And what are they really envious of? They have the same opportunity of salvation as these Gentiles. Uh, if, we, uh, if we're in the world long enough, I'm sure we'll come across these same kind of individuals here. If we haven't already the kind of people that aren't happy the way they are, but instead of uh, coming to join us and share in our joy, they just wanna drag us down to their level of misery. And you'll come across those kind of people. And so they gathered a mob, and I don't know what part of the marketplace the evil men hung out at, but the Jews know just where to find them somehow. They searched for the evil men in the marketplace, and it sounds like they kinda got them to start the mob. And they ended up throwing the whole city in an uproar. And uh, we've seen these last few years in our country what, uh, how dangerous and scary a mob can be. Uh, it seems like a lot of mobs are kind of started by people who have agendas. And uh, once a group of people get together like that, they start thinking like a mob. They don't start thinking like individuals anymore. And they just follow the crowd. And it gets out of hand really fast. And these individual people probably wouldn't even have been so offended if they heard the gospel for themselves, but the Gentiles just twisted their thinking into just getting into a mob and attacking them. So they just blindly followed their leader. And it's kind of like sheep. Uh, sheep can easily start following one another and they can get a whole train of like follow the leader going with the sheep. And there's been a few times where the lead sheep will jump off a cliff and all the other sheep will just follow them and jump off with them just because they're following the leader. And so people can be kind of like sheep, but uh, that's why we need our good shepherd. And if you turn to John chapter 10, verse 7, this verse was actually mentioned in the morning service too. But uh, John chapter 10, verse 7 says, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come in except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good sheep shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So it shows us that uh, we have our good shepherd. Jesus described how good of a shepherd he is for us. He lays down his life for us. We don't have to be like the people of this world who will blindly follow something they don't know anything about. We can follow Christ because he's our good shepherd. So this mob attacks the house of Jason, and in verse 6 it says, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. So this mob couldn't find who they were looking for, so they took someone else. And that's kind of characteristic of a mob. They're, they aren't accomplishing what they want to, so they just cause other trouble. And what did the crowd accuse them of? Turning the world upside down. And that's a pretty cool thing to be accused of. I hope people accuse me of that someday. But uh, when you turn a cruel, world upside, a cruel and harsh world upside down, it turns into a good and loving world. It's more like turning it right side up than turning it upside down. But uh, Jason was specifically accused of harboring this missionary group and they accused the group of rebelling against Caesar but Jesus himself taught to submit to those in charge. You remember he said, uh, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So they have these false accusations against them and uh, in verse 8 it says, and they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest they let them go then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea when they arrived they went into the synagogue of the Jews so Jason and the others actually had to pay their bail in order to be released it said they took security from them before they, to let them go And then they sent Paul and Silas on to the next city. And if I were Paul, I'd feel really bad for these new converts who experienced persecution so quickly. You would think that they would say something like, if this is what a Christianity is like, then I'm done with it. I don't need this kind of trouble. But we can see Paul's love and concern for these people in his epistles to the Thessalonians. And uh, there's a lot he didn't have time to disciple them and to teach them in. So I'm going to take a detour to the book of Thessalonians tonight. You were all tricked when I said we'd be in Acts 17. <laughs> so if you turn to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to try to breeze through the first book of the Thessalonians here. And don't freak out because this is really the way Paul meant for it to be read was the whole letter all at once to the church here. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, if you're wondering who Silvanus was, that was Silas's Latin name. So when he's mentioned in the epistles, it looks like he goes by Silvanus instead of Silas. But you can notice that he's writing to the church of the Thessalonians. And so it shows us that they actually had a, established church there they actually stayed and held on to their faith so um uh and it was despite the fact that Paul couldn't stay and disciple them longer and it was despite the fact uh that they were started off with persecution right away but you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 verse 18 he said on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it and it shows us that even though uh, Paul wasn't able to stay there and disciple them, they had someone much greater, the Holy Spirit. So even though Paul wasn't there, they had the Holy Spirit teaching them and giving them discernment, just like Jesus said he would in the John chapter 14 and 15 there. So we need to remember that we just need to plant in water, and it's God's job to bring the increase. So Paul didn't need to feel that pressure of, oh, how am I going to disciple them if I'm getting kicked out of the city, you know, because God was still with them. And I've heard uh, missionary stories before where a missionary uh, shared the gospel with only two people got saved in this village and then uh, they had to leave and there were no other Christians there, just those two Christians. And uh, they had no access to a Bible or anything and they were worried for them. They were afraid that they wouldn't grow like that, you know, just being two Christians all alone with no Bible or anything no church to go to, but they were able to see them years later, and they said they'd grown up so much in the Lord, just uh, fellowshipping with each other and praying together. And so it's awesome that uh, God, like we've been saying throughout this whole book, if you seek God, he'll reveal himself to you. And so uh, another thing about this greeting here in this first verse is that he wishes them grace and peace. And you know, with now that we know the context of the, this uh, how this, he witnessed to these group in the beginning and how he was taken from them so quickly and how they endured that persecution. You can know that he's not just saying like a casual greeting of, oh, grace and peace to you, but you know he really means it. He wishes that they could have grace and peace. So verse 2 says, "...we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. And so Paul was thankful for these Thessalonians because they were true converts. They didn't just work, they worked in faith. And Hebrews eleven six says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if you're going to work for God, you have to do, have the faith to believe that he is who he says he is. That means that he's worthy of everything we have to offer. And you have to believe that he will reward you for your work. That You have to believe that your labor is not in vain. And so if you're working without that faith, you'll end up with a cynical and bitter attitude. So you're, when you work, it, it needs to be work of faith. And uh, the second thing he mentioned was he said their labor of love. So they weren't just laboring, they were laboring in love. Uh, You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul talks about the importance of love, and he says uh, in the chapter, uh, he says, if you have the gift of tongues or prophecy, or if you have the faith to move mountains, these should be good gifts to labor for God with. But he says without love, it's all vanity. And he says even if you're generous enough to give everything you have to the poor, or you give your body as a burnt sacrifice... None of it matters if it's without love. So it's not enough to labor for God. It needs to be a labor in love. And uh, they weren't just patient. They were patient in hope. They had the hope that Jesus would come again and that they would be with him for all eternity. Hope like that can make it easy to be patient. Remembering what awaits us uh, makes this trip a lot easier. And he'll talk more about that uh, later in Thessalonians. And so these Thessalonians were doing things right. If you compare them to the church in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And so uh, if you noticed uh, in that there, the church of Ephesus there in Revelation, he said, I know that you've persevered. I know your patience and labored for my name. But uh, if you notice, they were missing what the Thessalonians had. They didn't have a work of faith, a labor of love, or patience of hope. They were missing those faith, hope, and love out of their works there. And uh, they had left their first love. And so that kind of applies to us tonight. If we feel like we've left our first love, if your relationship with God isn't what it used to be and your attitude attitude has turned bitter, then just do what verse 5 says there. Return back to where you had the right heart again. Go back to those first works again. So the Thessalonian church was doing pretty good. Paul uh, said he thanked God for their genuine conversion there, that, for those fruits of their conversion. On to verse 5 it says, "...for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit." So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the trials that they endured ended up being an example and a witness to the whole region. Uh, They had the witness of turning from their idols to the living and true God. And so uh, people's first impression of these Thessalonian believers must have been, uh, Well, look at those fools. The gods are punishing them for uh, leaving their idolatry. All these bad things started happening to, them, happening to them once they quit following their false gods here. But uh, as time went on, they saw that their faith was true and that they had turned to, live, to serve the living God. So their witness and example went out. And uh, Paul mentioned that they had the joy of the Holy Spirit in their affliction. And that's a really powerful witness to the world when they see us going through trials, but we still have the joy of the Holy Spirit. So on to chapter 2 now it says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much of conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness, nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, Of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also. How devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how to. We exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into heaven, into his own kingdom and glory. And so Paul explained to the Thessalonians how much he cared for them. He related himself, if you noticed, uh, he related himself to being gentle like a mother, but also exhorting and comforting and charging like a father to them. And so it shows that he really treasured the time he had with them. Even though he got separated from them, he was able, still able to keep them in prayers. He mentions that several times. He says, I was praying for you always, night and day. He considered them his own children. You know, he related himself to being their father and mother. And that he gave them that charge in verse 12. He said that they would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And uh, we've received such a wonderful calling and we really need to walk worthy of it. And it's also interesting, if you look through those verses, uh, Paul kind of tells you a good way to be a witness and to present the gospel. And some of these things, you know, they kind of seem natural to us, but there's so many people out in the world and like some, some televangelists and stuff who don't do things this way and they don't really care about the people. But uh, he talks about wanting to please God and not please men. He talks about not using flattering words or a cloak for covetousness. He talks about uh, not seeking the glory of men. He said he was gentle among them. He said that he labored and toiled for them. He was working on his own so that they didn't have to provide for him or give him the food or the place to stay. And he was just uh, really selfless when he shared the gospel with them. He really loved them and cared for them. And so he's not telling them to do these things, but it's a good example for them and for us to live this way with our lives, to be a witness to others. So that's one of the things kind of in between the lines there that we can apply to our lives. In verse 13 then it says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And uh, this is another reason that Paul mentions that he's rejoicing over these believers. For the first time was because of the fruit of their salvation, their faith, hope, and love, but uh, now he's thanking God for their receiving of His word that has the power to change us. You remember what Hebrews four twelve says says For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And I know I take the word of God for granted a lot, but I hope that I'm alone in that. I hope uh, that we all would uh, take it uh, more to heart, you know, because it really does have the power to change us, as these Thessalonians are proof of. So in verse 14, he said, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the uh, Judeans. So Paul reminds these Thessalonians that they're not the only ones who are being persecuted, and that's a comfort. In verse 15, he goes on, uh, Just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. And have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And so another encouragement regarding persecution is that their persecutors aren't getting away with anything, and God may not punish them right then and there. They might not be struck by lightning, you know. But uh, they will be punished to the uttermost if they don't repent. And God so, is so merciful to people that He will give them plenty of opportunities to turn around. Let's turn to Ezekiel 33 chapter 11. It's always good to keep this verse in mind to me. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 says, "Say to them, "As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked." but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And so it doesn't give God any pleasure when wicked people die. He wishes that they would repent instead. And even our worst enemies, God desires to save them and make them new creatures, just like he did to Paul. That's what God's heart is. But if they don't repent, then they're just storing up wrath for themselves. Paul said, uh, Let's see, where was that? They're filling up the measure of their sins. So it's almost like, you know, if you have one of those like measuring cups that tells you how much rain you've had or something. It's like these people, these evil people, they're filling up this measuring cup. And it's like when it gets to a certain point, it's like that's kind of like their fate sealed or something. That's just a bad example. But he's saying that they're God's measuring their sins. They're not getting away with anything. So in verse 17, it goes on, But we, brethren, having been been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy." And uh, Paul mentions another reason for their rejoicing over the Thessalonians. He's overjoyed at the fact that they will be in the presence of Jesus when he returns. That's something to rejoice about. It's easy to get caught up in the distractions of this world, but we need to remember what our destination is. And uh, look at the fruit of all of Paul's labor here. He's able to rejoice over them because he was walking worthy of God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. And so all this fruit that Paul has here, this, all this rejoicing he has over the Thessalonians, it's because he was walking worthy. It's what he charged the Thessalonians to do in verse 12. So on to chapter 3 now it says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, So Paul wanted to see these Thessalonians again, but he said in that verse 18, he said, Satan hindered him every time he wanted to go see them, but he was able to send Timothy to them to check up on them and to encourage them. So he found a loophole in the devil's plans there. Verse 3 says, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. So that's a good thing to keep in mind when we go through our afflictions. Uh, Paul says that we have appointments with affliction, and Jesus warned his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 18 through 21. He warned them of uh, the tribulations they'd endure. In verse 18 it says, Jesus is talking to his disciples at the Last Supper here. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And so we won't go through any trials that God himself didn't go through first. We aren't greater than Jesus, so we can't expect to be exempt from those persecutions. And another good verse that goes along with this is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 14. But Peter tells these saints, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy." and so we get to identify with christ in suffering and all our trials will seem so small when we stand in christ's presence looking back i'm sure i mean i'm sure i'll forget a lot of the things i thought were a big deal now when i'm in the presence of god so on to verse 6 now he says but now that timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrances of us, greatly des- desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were so comforted to hear how strong their faith was. You see how much Paul cared for these people. You know, he was really worried about them. He really wanted to know how they were doing. And uh, I'm always worried when I see an old friend. I can't really relax when I'm talking to them until I find out how their walk with the Lord is, if they're still following him or not. And there's a lot of comfort to hear that a friend has lasting faith, though. You know, when you do find out that they're still walking with the Lord, it's like a burden lifted off you. You're so so, uh, happy for them and comforted. And on to verse 8 now it says, For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord... It's kind of like Paul's basically saying there that if Timothy had brought back a bad report that they had forsaken their faith, it would have killed him. You know, he's saying, now we live if, we, if you stand fast in the Lord. And so hearing that they do have good faith, it's renewing him despite the trials he's going through. It's an encouragement to him. So on to verse 9 it says, For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which... We rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So Paul's saying that he can't thank God enough for what he did in the lives of these Thessalonians. He's praying night and day for them, that he'll be able to see them again, and he still wants to disciple them even though they're doing good. And that's the impression that they left on him. He considers them as children. And, uh, that's why I really wanted to go through this book of First Thessalonians because you really miss all this in those few short verses in the book of Acts. It looks like he witnessed to them and got kicked out and that it's okay, just go on to the next city. But it shows us in Thessalonians that he really cared for them. In verse 11 it says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And uh, again, it's pretty obvious how much Paul loves these saints, and now he's telling them that he wants them to love one another the same way. The results of having this brotherly brotherly love is that God establishes our hearts. And so... Uh, you know, it's almost annoying how much Paul's saying he loves these saints. He's saying that they're his joy and his reason for rejoicing and they're his hope. But he wants that for them to have that for each other, that brotherly love. And if you could just picture like how strong the churches in America would be if we really loved one another that much with a brotherly love. That's, you know, he said uh, so in verse 13, he said, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God. And Father, so that really will establish us when we love each other that much. In chapter 4, he goes on, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. And so Paul's telling them how proud he is of them and how happy he is that they're staying strong in the Lord, but now he exhorts them to abound more and more. And if it was me that Paul was writing to, I'd kind of have the thought of, what? I thought I was doing really good. And now you're telling me I needed to work a lot harder to uh, serve God like this? And uh, that's how the Christian walk is, though. Throughout our whole life as a Christian, we go through the process of sanctification. And uh, we grow in our walk with the Lord, but we won't ever reach perfection on this earth. That's uh, glorification when we get to heaven. That's when we we'll be made perfect. But through this process of sanctification, though, God's pruning us so that we have more fruit. And with that fruit, we have more rejoicing like Paul here. You know, he's rejoicing over all this fruit he sees. And when we get to heaven, we'll have more rewards to cast at the Father's feet. So that's the importance of sanctification. In verse 2, he goes on, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that ye should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so Paul goes into how they can practically abound more and more. In Acts, he probably read them that letter he was carrying with him uh, on what the Gentiles should do after they come to the Lord. You remember a few weeks ago we read about that. They had their council meeting in Jerusalem and they were saying they were deciding if the Gentiles should be circumcised or what they should do. And they said, no, they don't need to go through any of those laws of Moses. They just need to abstain from sexual immorality and from things strangled and that have blood in them and from idolatry. So no doubt Paul read that to these Thessalonians when he first witnessed to them, but he's reminding them again here that they need to abstain from this. And, uh, It's funny here, did you ever ask God what his will is for you? We see in verse 3 that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So look no further, that's God's will for you. That's a joke, you know, he has specific plans for us, but his general will is that we are sanctified. And uh, he's telling them this, he's telling them that they need to stand out from the rest of the world. Those who don't know the Lord are literally bound in sin. They can't get away from it. But when you come to Christ, he breaks those chains. And when you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit is living in you, you have the choice to sin, but you also have the choice to practice obedience to God. And there was a teacher at Bible College, uh, and his name was Tom Mouch. And I remember the one thing he said like several times throughout the semester. Uh, I actually had him for two semesters, and he said it several times, but he said, To continue in sin is to deny the power of the Spirit that's in you. So we don't have to sin anymore. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in us to deliver us from that continuous sin. But, uh, of course, we're not perfect. We won't be perfect till we get to heaven, and we're still going to make mistakes. In verse 6, it goes on, uh, That no one should take advantage of you and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So here it sounds like Paul is warning them of false teachers who will tell them, "Come and tell them, oh, it's okay to be sexually immoral. It's okay to do the things the world's doing." Paul is telling, warning them that a. Uh, This isn't God, this isn't my teaching you're rejecting, it's God you're rejecting. If you uh, fall for those false teachers' lies. In verse 9 he goes on, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Again, even though this church is doing great, Paul still urges them to keep progressively walking with the Lord. And it's dangerous to slow down or take a break from God, as silly as that sounds. If, uh, if we aren't making a point to purposely pursue God, then soon enough the devil or the world or our own flesh will sidetrack us. And uh, if you've ever been like on a hiking trail And you see a path that goes to the side. And you're like, oh, I'm curious where this goes. And you start going down that path. It's kind of easy to stray off and go too far. And you look back and you see how far you've wandered. Or else you might not even see the path at all anymore if you wandered too far. And it's kind of like that. But uh, that's when God reaches out to us and says, You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. So if we get sidetracked like that, we just need to remember our first works, return to God, and uh, we need to be walking with Jesus every day. So it's so dangerous to just slow down. Like we saw in the morning service, you know, the Amalekites attacked the stragglers and those who were in the back of the line when the Israelites were going through the desert there. And that's what the devil does. He likes to attack the weak ones and the ones who have fallen behind and the ones who are unguarded. He plays dirty like that. So on to verse 11, it says uh, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. And so Paul tells them to lead a quiet life. There, there's, there are those people out there who want drama in their lives, it seems like. It seems like they're almost trying to stir up things Intentionally. And then there are those who look for drama in other people's lives, and they end up gossiping and being busybodies. But Paul would tell them to mind their own business. <laughs> I wonder if that's where this phrase uh, originated from. And there's a difference between uh, trying to exhort someone, and that means to come alongside of them, to encourage them and help them. And there's a difference between that and criticizing them. Uh He tells them how to work with their own hands. That's kind of a practical thing. Try to provide for yourself so that you aren't a burden to others. And not everyone can work or find a good job, but that's not who he's talking to. He's talking to those people who are too lazy to work. And, uh, you know, we all know that that saying that idle hands are the devil's playground. That's another practical thing about what he's saying here. When we become idle, that's when we're often tempted the most. And he tells them to do these three things so that they'll be a better witness to those who don't know God and so that they won't be lacking anything. On to verse 13, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. So Paul goes on to a, an encouraging doctrine here. Yeah, it sounds like the Thessalonians were probably confused uh, in something that Paul didn't have the time to teach them about. Uh, they were grieving when someone in the church died because they thought they missed the return of Christ. They were upset. They're like, oh, no, now they can't enjoy eternity with us because they, they died before Jesus returned. But Paul says that we don't have to sorrow like those who have no hope. And it's true, uh, any funeral is tough, but I don't know how anyone gets through it if they don't believe in God or eternity. And he goes on with this. In verse 14, he says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So when Jesus returns and blows the trumpet, our Christian brothers and sisters who went on before us are going to beat us to the sky. Uh, The Thessalonians didn't have to worry about that. And we're supposed to be looking forward to the rapture. Paul says to comfort one another with these words. And it is very comforting. There's a lot of days where I was on my way into work, and I'd, uh, uh, as I'm walking from the car to the building, I'll look up at the sky just to make sure Jesus isn't coming. And uh, I'll say, okay, Lord, I'm walking into work now. I'm almost at the door. Are you sure you don't want to come back yet? And then I have to say, well, maybe tomorrow, and I have to go into work anyways. But uh, it's comforting, though. It's a comforting thought. And we're supposed to comfort one another with it. So just think, uh, we could see Jesus face to face before I even finish this sentence. It didn't work. I really was hoping he'd come back before then. Sorry guys, you have to go through the rest of the study now. But uh, heaven's just not a final destination, it's a present motivation So if you're discouraged, if you're tired of your job or the trials you're going through, just remember that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we could be with Jesus. On to chapter 5 now, he goes on. He says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. And so uh, Paul says the coming of Jesus is going to be like a thief in the night, and that it will come suddenly and when we don't expect it. It's not like NASA's going to pick up Jesus flying through space saying, oh, we have an encounter coming in. Paul's explaining that uh, it's going to happen right away. And uh, it's a blessing for us, but a curse for the world. When the world is robbed of its Christians, uh, it's just going to be full of awful people. And if you're wondering what the people who are left will be like, we can look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. I think it's just a few pages back. But uh, it talks about here uh, the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of the flesh. So verse 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so that's who will be left on the world. But we don't have to worry about it because we'll be up with Jesus. In verse 6 now it goes on, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So since Jesus could return at any moment, we should be living as if each day is our last day on earth. And that doesn't mean to go out and party. It means that we should make the most of every moment we have. In verse 9 it goes on, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And so back in chapter 3, verse 3, Paul said that we are appointed to afflictions. But here in verse 9, he says that uh, we are not appointed to wrath. We are appointed to salvation. And so that's a good thing to keep in mind. Uh, that's why I don't believe we'll be here during the Great Tribulation. That's why I believe the rapture will happen before that, is because we're not appointed to wrath. And the Great Tribulation is a time of God pouring out his wrath on the world. But that's not for us. So we'll have afflictions, but we won't have wrath. And this is another thing that Paul says to comfort one another with and edify one another. Verse 12 goes on. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. And so the Thessalonians did this in the book of Acts in those few short verses we read, but they had an angry mob drag them into the court and they didn't seek retribution. They paid their bail money and they went home. And Jesus told us to be wise as serpents and subtle as doves. So uh, it's good that they didn't try to wrangle up their own mob and start like a war in the city. They just sought peace and... uh, even though they were being mistried they still paid their bond money so they could go home he goes on now rejoice always pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is the will of god in christ jesus for you and so do you want to know what the will of god is for your life here it is rejoice always pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is the will of god in christ jesus for you in verse 19 now it goes on Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So even though the book of Acts didn't focus on it, we saw tonight how much Paul loved these Thessalonians and how strong they were in their faith, even though Paul had to leave right away. And uh, we can be comforted because Jesus is coming soon. And will be with him for all eternity and he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there will be no more pain, for the former things will have passed away. So I hope we're all comforted with that tonight. And uh, sorry for the surprise detour. Next week we might go through the second epistle of Thessalonians and then go back to the book of Acts. And uh, I really wanted—I really meant to go through the book of Philippians while we were there last week, but I forgot all about it. But it's good to see the context there too. Paul talks about being anxious for nothing and rejoicing and being like Christ. And uh, you know the group he's witnessing to or telling these things to is the group that saw him being beaten and imprisoned and uh, all the stuff he went through in Philippi there. So it's really cool to see the context of these epistles. I think it helps you understand them more. So we'll go ahead and end in prayer here and we'll have a more uh, of a time of worship. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus Christ, for uh, your love for us, Lord. Thank you for the encouraging promises we have to hold on to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for uh, loving us so much and uh, allowing us to love one another with that same love, Lord God. And I pray that you'd help us to practice that throughout this week, Lord. I pray that you'd be, go with us and be with us. Help us to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Help us to keep our minds stayed on you, Jesus. I pray that you just equip us for this week and go with us and uh, strengthen and encourage these uh, brothers and sisters of mine here, Lord God. And I thank you for all that you do, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.